Every year on June the 6th, we celebrate something called D-Day. This, uh, this year, last month, was the 74th anniversary of D-Day. Now, what is D-Day? D-Day was the decisive turning point of World War II, and really one of the great turning points in all of, of world history, because it marked the, de the decisive invasion of the Allied troops into Europe for the overthrow of what were called the Axis powers, or the Axis of Evil, primarily led by Nazi Germany. Over 156,000 troops stormed the beaches of Normandy in France on that day, and our victory uh, that day signaled the end of Hitler's conquest. Now, that wasn't actually the end of the war. D-Day was the beginning of the end, perhaps, but the, the war continued on for 11 months after that where the, uh, the, the axis of evil, those forces, continued to fight what was for them a losing battle, but they continued to fight and flail and attempt to overthrow the Allied forces. It wasn't until the following May, May of 1945, that they laid down their arms, that they accepted defeat, and that was what's called VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. 11 months after D-Day, and on VE Day, there was, there was celebrating in the streets all over the world, from the streets of Moscow to the streets of Los Angeles. Victory. The war was over. Now there is, I think, there's a, there's a helpful picture in that story, a picture of the Christian life. And you may have actually heard this analogy made before, D-Day to V-Day or V-E-Day, all throughout the book of 1 Peter. We are, we are finishing up 1 Peter today. We've been going through it since about mid-February. But all throughout this wonderful letter, Peter has brought this truth to bear, has brought it to the surface for us over and over again, that on one hand, to be a Christian is to have an, an unimaginable life full of blessing, that we just, we just can't get over the fullness of all that Jesus Christ has done for us, Peter says, that he died for us on the cross and was raised again in victory, and therefore the decisive victory has been won. Jesus has become the victor over all sin and all death for all eternity, and by faith in him, we have complete forgiveness of our sins. Isn't that good news? That we have received the adoption as children, that God has made us his children. He is our heavenly father, and that is an eternally secure position that we now share. We've been given, in Christ, we've been given a new life entirely. Not just hope for one day, but a, a new life today, a new birth that, that we can now reflect the glory of God in how we live, both as individuals and as his people, the church. We can bring honor to him, uh, and we have a new family. Peter says our new family, our new household, is the church, not related by blood, but, but related by the common bond of faith. And we have a deeper and deeper love for one another. We are a unique community out of all the communities and societies of the earth. The church is unique. We are the light of the world. That's all good news. But the truth remains that we live in a darkened world. I mean, right here and now, we live in a world full of suffering and hardship, and the Bible doesn't tiptoe around that. We might think that the Bible would just kind of be hands-off concerning that reality, but it's not. Peter mentions it on every single page of this letter. He calls it a fiery ordeal. We saw that last week, two weeks ago. A fiery ordeal, he says, is this life and the suffering that comes to us. The Apostle Paul said that we've been given the gift of faith. We have been called to trust in Jesus. But in the same way, we've also been called to suffer for Jesus, that the Christian life is not a life full of rainbows and candy and flowers all the time, but it's a life of great difficulty because it means following Christ, and he himself suffered. 
And so the decisive victory has already taken place, right? Jesus has accomplished your salvation entirely. It is finished. And the future promise of glory is assured for us, and we can be confident in it. That's why Peter says we fix our hope. Back in chapter 1, he says, fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our future is secure, and it's wonderful. The victory is secure. Our future is secure. And yet we live in this land between. Like the time between D-Day and V-E Day, where the war was essentially won, but not complete yet. There was fighting still left to be done. We live in this in-between place that, frankly, can be difficult and downright miserable. So how do we make sense of it? Not just that it exists, not just that it is, but how do we make sense of how we're called to live in the midst of it? If the victory's been won on my behalf, if the, if the ultimate victory is, is securely promised for us, how do we live in the in-between land? And that's what Peter wants to close his letter with. He wants to encourage us today, and I think today will be a great encouragement to us. How are we supposed to live in the in-between place? Peter says, you live in such a way that you trust God with everything. And that sounds very, maybe sounds almost like church cliche, but ultimately that's what Peter's going to call us to. And I think if we internalize the truth that we see today in the scripture, it can change everything in our lives. Everything. Change how we view the world, change how we operate within it. So look with me at verse 6. If you were here last week, it doesn't matter if you weren't, but last week we we looked at chapter 5, verse 5, which was our call to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, that we as the church are meant to live humbly as servants toward one another, and in that way we become a a counterculture within the culture. We will look different, we act different, because we are humble people toward one another. Well, Peter carries on that motif right here in verse 6. That that same theme carries over. He says, not just in how we treat each other, but look at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. What does it mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Uh, There is an unspoken parallel, I think, in this scripture, that when Peter makes reference to the mighty hand of God, that he is hearkening back to something in the Old Testament, a very familiar and famous story of how the people of Israel were rescued by God's mighty hand from slavery. You may know this story, even if you've never opened a Bible, you've probably heard this story before. It's it's about the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt, and God, through many miracles, through his mighty hand, he rescued his people out of their slavery and promised them a land, promised them a place of their own, the scripture says, that was flowing with milk and honey, a place of unimaginable blessing, a promised land. And yet for them, there was an in-between, wasn't there? It took them 40 years to get there. There was an in-between, a land between that is called the wilderness, and much of what you see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is all about their, their traveling in the land between. The problem was not with God, and the scripture is clear on this. If you read back through that story, the problem was with Israel. It didn't, it didn't have to take 40 years. It wasn't meant to take 40 years for them, but it did because they lacked faith and trust in God. God referred to them on, on multiple occasions as a stiff-necked people, a people who simply wouldn't trust him and follow him. And as they traveled along, it it tells us of Israel that they became increasingly indignant toward God, angry with him, angry with Moses, their leader. 
They did not humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. And in the end, those who were defiant, they didn't enter into the promised land. God swore to them that they would not enter his rest. They would not enter into the land of promise. Their descendants after them did, but those who rejected God did not. They did not experience the blessing that he had promised them if they would simply walk humbly with him. Now, Peter's point, I think, is this. I don't want to get us off track. Think about the parallel here. That we have, you and I, if we are Christians, by faith in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from slavery. Not tangible slavery like the Israelites, but a slavery to sin, a slavery to death. We've been set free from that. And we are promised a, a future glory. There's a promised land. There's a rest that awaits us, those who have faith in Jesus. And yet we are called right now to a land between. That's what this life is. This life until glory is the land between and the land between, Peter says, is meant to be a life of humility under the hand of God, a life of submission, a life of trust, a life of gratitude, of devotion. That's what humility means here. It's not just that we acknowledge in word that God's big and I'm small. That by itself is not really humility. It's how we live it out. It's how we walk, that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Or in other words, I'm not going to pridefully try to elbow God out of the picture, out of my life, because I think I know better than him. That's what Israel did. Now we humble ourselves by walking faithfully with God, even in the in-between, through the difficulties and the hardships of life. We trust him. And we trust him, not blindly, we trust him with a promise. Do you see the end of verse 6? That he, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time that he may exalt you at the proper time. The people of Israel were just convinced that God had forgotten about them, that he didn't care, that he wasn't interested in what was best for them, and they completely missed the faithfulness of his promise. They missed the fact that he was always present with them, that the scripture says that he was a pillar of cloud by day to shield them from the sun. He was a pillar of fire by night to light the way in the darkness. God was always with them. Their shoes never ran out. They had manna to eat every day that they did not earn or cultivate. It was just there for them. And yet they didn't understand that God was with them in such a powerful way. And Peter right here makes a reference to Psalm 55 when he says, Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will exalt you. I, I skipped ahead. He will exalt you at the proper time. Um, you know, I, sometimes I, start, I think that God loves me maybe just because he has to. That God is, is kind to me because, you know, well, like I found some sort of loophole. I trusted in Jesus, and now God just kind of has to let me in. I know I'm not really worthy. He knows I'm not worthy, but that's the deal, you know. I've got baptized, and so I'm going to heaven. And it's as if I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get into heaven, but I'm going to have to go through the doggy door. Like, God, God, you know, yeah, he loves me, but he's not really proud of me. You know, he's like, I'm the, I'm the, the stepchild that doesn't, you know, is not really part of the family. And y'all, the, the, the promise of Peter right here, at the end of verse 6, God will exalt you at the proper time. That God's heart towards you is not, you're lucky to have me, and maybe I'll let you in if I feel like it. No, that he throws the doors open for you, that he exalts you. Did you earn it? Did you deserve it? No. But that's the whole idea. Why, why would we walk humbly with God? Because it's not my job to exalt myself. God himself will exalt me and will exalt you at the proper time. That's a promise that we ought to cling to. That if we think like Israel, that in the land between, perhaps God has forgotten us. Perhaps God's promises won't be fulfilled in my life. Peter says, no, he will exalt you in due time, 
Not in the time of our choosing, but in the time of his. And it's as good as done. The promise is secure. So humbly walk under the mighty hand of God. Now, how do you do that? Peter doesn't give us a whole list here, but he gives us an interesting example. You look in verse 7. Really, really an, an important command and promise for us in verse 7. You could memorize this in 10 minutes. I encourage you to do it. Here in verse 7, part of what it means to walk humbly with God, Peter says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I mentioned Psalm 55 a minute ago because I got ahead in my notes. That happens sometimes. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Psalm 55, that's a promise. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Um, we know from reading 1 Peter, if you read through 1 Peter, there's an emphasis all throughout on suffering and persecution. That was the, that was the experience of his readers, that they were really being, being um, marginalized, mocked. They were suffering because they were Christians. That was their circumstance. And so when Peter talks about anxiety, he's probably talking specifically for them about the anxiety of living in an antagonistic world, a world that always seemed to be against them. But I'd say also that this verse broadly applies it for us. Okay? It doesn't have to be that in your life necessarily. It can be any anxiety, any point of anxiety or fear that comes from the crippling reality that we are not in control I don't know if you ever thought about where anxiety comes from. That's where it comes from. The acknowledgement that I don't really have control over the world or over my future or even in many ways over my own life. Sometimes I don't feel like I even control my own decisions. I don't know if you know what that feels like. Ultimately we do, but that, that's, that's where anxiety comes from. It's from a lack of control. And, and my guess is that all of us live with some, some form of anxiety right there at the surface. All of us. Um, a lot of us are, you know, kind of, act tough, like, you know, I don't, I don't worry about anything, I don't care about, about anything. Um, but there's some, there's some manner of fear that I think all of us carry with us that exists right there at the surface. Now, the danger is, um, if I recognize that I don't really have control over the world, I might be prone to wonder if God does. And again, that was Israel's problem. Israel didn't think God could control their circumstances. They thought they knew better than he did. They didn't think he had their best interest in mind, or perhaps he wasn't powerful enough to see it through. But my anxiety, I will, try to, I will come to this place where I wonder, does God have control? Can God do this thing that I'm incapable of doing? And that's why I think Peter commands this. Verse 7 is an act of faith. He commands it. The Bible commands us of things sometimes, I think, because the, the Scripture, God knows that we have to be told. I have to be told here, Kyle, cast your anxieties on him. That, that, that Greek word that Peter writes for casting, it's, it's the idea of throwing something violently. You throw it with all your might. You cast your anxiety upon God. That's an act of faith because you're admitting that you can't control the universe. You're giving your anxiety to him because I can't control what other people do. I can't control my future. I can't control the economy. I can't ultimately control the decisions that my children make. I desperately want to control all those things, but I can't, and it makes me anxious. There's only one person, capital P person, who is truly, ultimately in control. And Peter says you give your anxiety to him. And you know what the awesome thing here is? The, not just a command, but a promise. It would be enough, I suppose, if Peter just said, cast your anxieties upon God, period. But he doesn't. He attaches a promise because he cares for you. Isn't that great? 
Cast your cares, your fears, your worries upon God because he cares for you. It's interesting that God, the sovereign God of all the universe, who's got a lot on his mind, I'm sure, all the time, that he's not too busy to care about what you care about. That he's not too busy to be bothered with your fears and your worries and your struggles in life. Peter says God actually wants your anxieties. He's got shoulders big enough to carry them for you. Cast your anxiety upon him because he wants to walk with you through whatever it is and he can handle whatever it is. God cares for you. Some of us need to hear that today. And I know that's, that's, that's Jesus 101, that God loves you. But it's such an easy and strange, we have, an, we have a strange way of forgetting that truth. That in the day-to-day, in the land between where things are, are difficult, in, in a broken and darkened world, to believe and really internalize that, that the creator of the universe cares uniquely for me. That he is present with you, that he's not forgotten you or forsaken you. And Peter says, therefore, your whole disposition for life should be as a trusting child to a good father knowing that God did not set the world in motion and then take a vacation from us, but that he's intimately connected, that he's intimately uh, always desiring closeness with you. He wants your anxieties. And like a trusting child, we just, we, we, we love God enough to trust him with even the things that drive us into fear. And, and so maybe today, maybe today you're holding on to an anxiety, you're holding on to a fear something you can't control, something that's driving you absolutely up the wall, and you simply need this command and promise to take root in your heart. That not only does God desire your anxiety, but he has the capacity to take it. That he can manage it, and that you can live life under his care. That's not a small thing. And some of us today, that's what you need. Now, Peter wants to make sure here that we understand God's care, but God's care does not exist in a bubble just around me or just around you. There's a bigger issue at stake. There's a bigger war going on. Remember we talked about D-Day and V-E Day? The war continued, although it was as good as one. Look at verse 8, what Peter wants to draw our attention to here, that this is not just about crawling up into God's lap because he loves me and cares for me. There's, there's, that's true, Okay. But there's, there's something going on here that if we're not mindful of, will come back and bite us. Literally, Peter says. Verse 8, he says, Be of sober spirit now. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter says we have an enemy. He calls him our adversary, the devil. This is Satan. He is the great deceiver. The word that Peter uses here for devil is the word uh, diabolos, which literally means to throw something through. That's his name. He wants to throw something through you that he might destroy you. And he is on the prowl. Peter says, he is hunting and roaring as if a lion who is seeking his prey, someone to devour. Now, that is a scary image, but Peter doesn't give it to us in order to scare us. He's not trying to frighten us here. He's trying to sober us. That was his command at the beginning. Be sober. Be on the alert. Recognize reality. That the darkness of this world, this land in between, is a dark place, but that darkness has a source. 
The source is a person. His name is Satan, and Satan has a desired outcome. His evil has a desired outcome, and the outcome is the destruction of your faith. He wants to destroy your faith. Satan, I don't think Satan is content merely to tempt you into sin. That's, that's a small victory for him, perhaps. But ultimately, he wants to draw you away from God entirely. He wants to destroy your faith. And the context here is, is helpful because I, I think Peter's desire, again, he's not trying to scare us. He, he doesn't want you to think that Satan's hiding behind every bush and you've always got to ha- have your head on a swivel because, man, he's everywhere. He's coming. Okay? That in some sense, we should overestimate his power as if he's co-equal with God. No, we don't overestimate Satan's power. But we do understand what he's up to. And in the specific context of 1 Peter 5, Peter is saying that Satan wants to aggravate your suffering. You see at the end of verse 9, he says, listen, now the same experiences of suffering are happening to your fellow Christians throughout the world. Peter says that in order to help us understand we're not alone when we suffer. That, that, you know, I, I haven't been singled out for some unique punishment that nobody else knows about. All over the world, Christians are suffering. But Peter's point, I think, here is to show us that Satan wants to use your suffering against you. That's why uh, uh, God, think about what Peter's already said about God. God's desire is to exalt you through your suffering. Satan's desire is to devour you through it. God's desire is to comfort you in your anxieties. Satan's desire is to aggravate your anxieties and convince you that they, that they uh, are, are bigger than God. And Satan makes no secret about it. You notice how Peter describes him? He says he prowls around like a roaring lion. Why didn't Satan use the, the image from Genesis of a slithering snake? That might have made more sense that, you know, Satan's like a serpent. He's deceptive. He's sneaky, right? And that's true. But Peter uses an altogether different image. He says that he is a roaring uh, lion, big, brash, loud, scary. One of the commentators on this verse says, and I think this this is true, the roaring of the devil is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. Why is, why is Peter paint the devil as making this big show? He's not trying to hide anything. He's roaring. It's because he's already been defeated. The death blow has already taken place. Jesus has risen from the grave. And all he can do now, all Satan can really do, any ploy that he can have against us as Christians is to try to scare us, to try to frighten us into running away from God. He's flailing about. He knows he's defeated. He's just kicking and trying to do all the damage he can do before it's over. His hope... Satan's hope is that your suffering, that your hardship will weaken your faith to the point that you will turn away from Jesus. And in that sense, you'll be devoured. I think that's the context of Peter. Um, But knowing his schemes, right? Being alert, being sober-minded, Peter says, resist him. Resist him. Stand strong against him. And how do we do that? He answers. He says, be firm in your faith. Now, I like this, okay, because I tend to think if I'm going to resist Satan, then I need to go on the offensive. I need to have this Herculean strength to overcome all sin and temptation and Satan's roaring power. But that's not what Peter calls us to do. He doesn't say fight the devil. He says resist him by clinging all the more tightly to God. Firm in your faith. Who is our faith in? It's not in ourselves. It's in someone greater than us and someone far greater than Satan. We resist not by our own strength, but by a deeper trust in God, the God who has the power to overcome the enemy. We cling to him. 
That's how we resist the enemy. Uh, I mentioned this a minute ago about uh, the people of Israel. <clears throat> the fact that, uh, that they, they journeyed through the wilderness, they were in, in some sense, like us, they were in a land between. Um, and, I, and I think about all the, the ways that, that this scripture and the truth correlates, that they had been rescued from slavery, they'd been set free, they'd been saved in a sense. The fullness of God's promise, what awaited them, the promised land, was secure. God, had, God uh, would not violate that promise. He would bring them to the place that he had reserved for them. And they were living in the land between, kind of like we are. But they made an absolute mess of it. I think that's part of Peter's concern. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want us to make a mess of this in the same way that Israel did. But think about how they did it. And so let's, let's, let's overlap the two stories here. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this. Let's overlap the two stories here. Uh, Israel, rather than humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God, they rejected God. At one point, you remember this? They, they made a, a, a golden cow to worship in God's place because they were sure that God had left them and forsaken them and the golden cow would fulfill them. It's insanity. It was pride. They walked away. Rather than casting all their anxieties upon God because he cares for them, at every sign of trouble, they just lashed out. They, sh they shook their fists at God and they wished they could go back into slavery. They missed the food in Egypt because at least there they had some variety, not just manna. They wished they could go back into slavery. It's insanity. It's pride. Rather than growing firm in their faith, they cowered in fear and they refused to conquer their enemy's land, even though God had promised them that they would conquer. They cowered in fear. They're too big for us. They're too mighty for us. They refused to go in. At every step, in, in terms of how Peter commands his church, the, the church of God, he, Israel, we recognize, failed in those ways. And, and the question of, okay, what was wrong with them? Why did they so, uh, so arrogantly, pridefully, flippantly walk away from God in the midst of all that he'd done for them? The answer is, comes, comes down to one word. And this is what I want to encourage us in as we close. Um, the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, but in Hebrews 3, one word describes Israel as to why they failed in the wilderness, that they did not enter into God's promises because of unbelief. That's the key word, Hebrews 3. It says unbelief. And in fact, in Hebrews 4, it says, we have had good news preached to us, just as they did also, just as Israel did also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was, it was not united by faith in those who heard. Israel had all the good grace of God upon them and all his promises before them, and yet they didn't have faith in God, and therefore they did not experience the fullness. They didn't experience the life that he had given them. And so Israel's failure was not for lack of strength. It wasn't for lack of intellect. It was lack of faith. The difficulty of the wilderness, the land between for them, it revealed unbelief. And therefore, they crumbled in the face of it. And see, that's the warning of the book of Hebrews. It says, don't follow the same pattern they did. See to it that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Don't be like them. It's not just that they were knuckleheads and we say, man, why would you do that, okay? They didn't believe God, and therefore, at every turn, they fell apart and didn't experience life in his name. And I think that's what Peter's telling us to. That you notice in his parting words to us, Peter is saying 
that we are a people who have victory in Christ. It's already been given to us. And we have an ultimate victory that awaits us. We have a, a promised land that is secure by God's uh, grace. We, we, it, it's, it's as good as ours. It's not in question. And yet here in the land between, Peter says, you have to live a life of absolute faith and dependence. You notice Peter doesn't call us to a lot of activities here as the book comes to a close. He really doesn't call us to do anything tangible. He didn't call us to be strong. He calls us to depend on someone else. He calls us to faith. And faith is, if if your faith is in God, faith is the most powerful position you can hold. And I wake up every morning doubting that's true. But but that is such a prevalent message throughout all the scripture that if your faith rests in God, then you are the most powerful you can ever be. Because your power is not of you. It doesn't depend on you. Your power is linked to the very creator of the universe. In a world of suffering, in a world of sin, in a world of persecution and sickness and disappointment, Peter says, put your roots deep down in God. Put your roots deep down into God because he's the only one powerful enough to redeem you. Uh, The Apostle John says it like this. He says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. That is a stunning statement right there. The victory that overcomes the world is our faith. And faith is, by definition, not something that you do. It's something that you trust, someone that you trust. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith overcomes all things because faith is in the one who overcomes all things. And see, that's the promise that Peter leaves us with. You look at verse 10. Um, Oh, humble yourself, cast your anxiety upon him, be alert and understand the devil's schemes and resist him and be firm in your faith. And here's why. Verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Every single word in that promise is passively received. You can go back and read it. There's not a single thing we're commanded to do right there. Everything is simply done by God, and we receive it with open hands. I'm going to read it again. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, it's just a little while. He's trying to give perspective here. It's ultimately very brief on the the timeline of eternity. He says, the God of all grace, all grace, he holds nothing back, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter says God's hand over you is mighty and his heart toward you is tender. God is both powerful enough to redeem all things and make all things according to his good purposes, and he has a heart loving enough to see it through on your behalf. No one else in this universe can lay claim to that reality. All-powerful and all-loving and therefore his promises will be true forever. The in-between suffering is temporary. God's glory is eternal. Peter says, root yourselves in it. This is the promise and the hope that gets us through, that navigates us through the land between. 
The Bible does not promise us an easy life. In fact, in some sense, as a Christian, life even may now get harder for us. But things are not now as they one day will be, and our Heavenly Father assures us that the will be, the future, is secure, it's as good as done, and so Peter says, dig down deep into it. And that's how you humble yourself under God's hand. That's how you live. Do you see why he he could command us to cast our anxieties upon God? That seems like such a strange command for me because it's so hard to do. I mean, how do I know when I've done it? How do I know I'm not anxious anymore? I've given it all to God. Well, it's a faith that trusts him enough that all the things I can't control, ultimately he does and he cares for me. Here at the end of of 1 Peter, he mentions a man named Silvanus. Silvanus is probably the deliverer of the, the letter, probably the man who took it from Peter to the church. He's a trustworthy man. These are my words. Sylvanus will assure that it gets to you. But look right, right after he talks about Sylvanus in verse 12, he gives us this parting phrase. And I love it so much. We're not going to look at, at everything he says in the, in the little salutation there. But in the second half of verse 12, he says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand firm in it. He says, I've given you five chapters here, five wonderful chapters. We've been walking through them for a couple of months now on what Peter calls the true grace of God. This is true, and this is all you need, basically. That in, in some sense, I wouldn't wish this on us, but in, in some sense, if all you had was First Peter on a desert island somewhere, you'd have enough. This is the true grace of God. And nowhere, if you've, if you've ever read First Peter, I encourage you to go back and read it again. It'll take you half an hour. Nowhere in this letter does Peter call us simply to be good religious people as if it's all up to us to earn our way to God. It's never in there. Nowhere in this letter does he say that you can be happy if you'll just seek happiness and, and, and you know, keep Jesus around, make Jesus a manageable part of your life, and then you know, see about your own ambitions. That's not in there either. What Peter says is this is the true grace of God. It's a grace that chose you without any earning on your part. It's a grace that has given you a new birth and a new hope. A grace that promises you all the riches of God that have been reserved in heaven for you. A grace that no suffering can destroy or even diminish. A grace that makes you spotless and holy in God's eyes forever. He will never look upon you as a, as a rotten, worthless sinner. He sees you through the eyes of Jesus Christ. You are perfect in his eyes because of what Jesus has done for you. And therefore, it's a grace that changes your life. It's a grace that makes you a new person that you and I now can live in such a way that we reflect the glory of God in our words and actions and behavior. And it's a grace that makes us ambassadors of Jesus, that we as the church can reflect his light as a city set on a hill to a darkened world. And what do you do with all that amazing grace, Peter says? Stand firm in it. Might be my favorite command of the whole book. Stand firm in it. Put all your weight on it. Stake your whole life on the grace of Jesus Christ. Or as Peter said back in chapter 1, fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus. Y'all, if you and I, if we try to live life by our own strength, which is the natural way to live, I wake up every morning tempted in that direction. I'll do it today. I'll make it today. I'll even earn God's love today. I can do it. That if we try to live on our own strength, you, you need to understand this. Peter's been very clear on this. Your circumstances will win that battle. 
We will not win. Circumstances win. Suffering wins. Death wins. If life is according to our strength. I had a, a you probably forgot about this, Bo. We had a conversation a couple of weeks ago in this room. He looked down at one of the cracks, one of the deep cracks in this concrete floor, and he said, you know, nature always wins, doesn't it? It's true. I thought about it last night when I, was, when I was thinking about the end of this message. Nature always wins. Suffering always wins. Circumstances win. If your life is nothing more than your own strength and competency. And so if, you, if, if, if we're just here to be good religious people, then we will fight and flail with all our might, and in the end we'll be devoured, Peter says. Satan is stronger than us. He's craftier than us. Good, he eats good religious people for breakfast. Because that is not what we're called to be. We are called to be people who take our stand not upon our own strength, not upon our own hopes that things will turn out well in the end. We take a stand on the eternal grace of Jesus Christ, and therefore we will never be moved. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken because our, our feet are firmly planted on the grace of Jesus Christ, a strength strong enough to overcome the world and a heart tender enough to do it for you. God himself, Peter says, will establish you forever by faith. I just want to ask us before we pray, do you, do you have that kind of faith? A faith that, that you are standing firmly, not on your own strength, on your own plans and ambitions. You're not standing firmly on, on your bank account or even on your friendships or family. Anything that, that suffering could take away that is, un, uh, that, is a, that is a slippery place to stand. That is what Jesus called building your house on the sand. And when the storms of life come, great will be its fall. Only that which is built on the rock will last. And that's what Peter calls us to here at the end. The true grace of God that we might stand firm in it. And I just want to encourage you in this, that God for, for today, right here where we sit today, God desires and we desire to have great faith. But God doesn't need great faith from you today. God does not need great faith from you. God simply wants faith. He's great, so we don't have to be. Our faith, even our even very weak and timid faith, even faith that says, I'm just racked with anxieties. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, but if we turn to Jesus Christ, we can begin to cast them upon him because he cares for us. Fear concerning our own sin and temptation that we feel like, perhaps you feel like you're being devoured by the enemy in this moment. There is sin in your life that you don't know how you're ever going to overcome. And scripture says, grow firm in faith. You can't do it, but God can, so cling to him. And I just want to encourage you today that when Jesus Christ uh, laid his hands out to be nailed to the cross, when his feet were nailed down, when he was lifted up, he says, all who look upon me will have life. All who look upon me, that if we take our eyes off of our circumstances, if I take my eyes off of myself, if I refuse now to do this thing by my own strength, and I simply look to the Savior who shed his blood for me, I'll have life in his name. That's what it means to have faith. He did that for you, that he might make you a child of God forever. That is true grace, and we can stand in it today. Can I pray for us? Father, we, we come to you this morning. We have absolutely nothing to give that you need.
You have everything that we need. And Father, would you, would you um, humble us in the, in the best kind of way that we might be humbled under your mighty hand, Lord, not because we are uh, just worthless little ants under your uh, uh, creative power. No, Lord, that you, you, you call us to humility because it's your desire and your promise to exalt us, to make much of us, to glorify us for all eternity because we have been made um, uh, brothers and sisters of Jesus himself by faith. And so, Father, would you humble us in the best kind of way? Would you help us to see, Lord, that, that this life, as difficult as it is, does not get the last word, that, that our darkness, Lord, troubling as it may be, painful as it may be, Lord, that it is, it is only for a little while, as Peter says, but that you, the God of all grace, who have called us to your eternal glory in Jesus Christ, you will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish us forever. Father, I, I confess, and I, and I pray in this moment we're able to confess that this all is easier said than done. I want to, I want to always, every moment, stand firm in this grace. But Lord, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone, I'm prone to question. I'm prone to look at the world with all its evil and, and wonder how, how, how can all this be? How can, how can your promises be? Uh, so wonderful and so magnificent in the midst of, of this. And yet, Lord, at the end of the day, you, you call us um, to faith, um, not, in, not in the abstract. Lord, you are the God powerful enough to redeem us and loving enough to see it through. And so, Father, give us faith in Jesus Christ today a firm faith, a faith that cannot be shaken because, Lord, we cling to you and not to ourselves. Lord, I need this message. I pray, Lord, that you'd root it in my heart well and that we as a church, Lord, would be a people, not just individuals who believe these things, but a people who are fortified together, a people who are peculiar in this world because we have such a faith that is far beyond ourselves. And Lord, we are, we are therefore a very pure light to a darkened world that needs this so desperately. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.